1: Hey, my friends, I want to let you all know that my very first book, The Path of an Eagle, How to Overcome and Lead, after being knocked down, is now available for pre-order. I'll make sure the link is available in the show notes below. All right, my friends, let's do the show. There is a story for everyone here because every story matters. Human beings are primates, and primates are political animals. Our brains, therefore, are designed not just to hunt and gather, but also to help us get ahead socially, often via deception and self-deception. But while we may be self-interested schemers, we benefit by pretending otherwise. The less we know about our own ugly motives, the better. And thus, we don't like to talk about or even think about the extent of our selfishness. This is what my guest today, Doctor or well, Professor Robin Hansen, talks about in his new in his book, "The Elephant in the Brain." Such an introspective taboo makes it hard for us to think clearly about our nature and the explanations for our behaviors. The aim of Professor Hansen's book, is then to confront our hidden motives directly to track down the darker unexplained concerns and corners of our psychics and blast them out with the floodlights. Then, once everything is clearly visible, we can work to better understand ourselves. Why do we laugh? Why our artists sexy. Why do we brag about travel? Why do we prefer to speak rather than listen? Our unconscious motives drive more than just our private behavior. They also infect our social institutions, such as art, school, charity, medicine, politics, and religion. And during our conversation, Professor Hansen and I do talk a lot about why. Us as human beings love to talk about politics. Why is it that for some reason, politics is such a massive, massive thing? You know, in America and even in Australia, you have, for example, the American, you have the Democrats and you have the Republicans, two sides. And then you have, I think, the independents, the ones in the middle. And in Australia, you have liberals and labor, Then you have what we call the independence. The whole system just goes very, very deep and somewhat confusing at times. But nonetheless, human beings love to talk about political leaders, the political ideologies, and whether or not they agree with those things because the political leaders that are in government affect how we live. And for whatever reason – We have always been like this from the very, very beginning of time. Somehow, politics has been wired within us and we just love to bring it out. And that's some of the things that we talk about during this conversation of why that is the case with Professor Hansen. And I found it absolutely fascinating. And what is the future of technology? Where is it actually heading? What really motivates us to do these things uh, in life, uh, such as art, you know medicine, uh, why are some people selfish? Why are some people more selfish than others? Um, and so many other topics during this conversation is such a very important conversation that I think many of you are going to learn a great deal from this conversation with Professor Hansen. Um, Also, my friends, if you do get something from this one, please share it around to all your friends and your family. If you do want to get Professor Hansen's book, The Elephant in the Brain, it it will be available in the show notes below. So go and do that. I found the book just really, really interesting. There is so much in there. It is a big book, so it's not for the faint of heart, but when you do eventually get to – the end you feel really really satisfied but you've learned quite a bit as you've gone as you've gone along uh, each and every page so if you do want to get it link will be in the show notes below also my very first book the path of an eagle will be available very very soon in September links for that will be in the show notes below too to pre-order hope that you guys do end up getting a copy as well all right, my friends, you know what time it is. It is time to journey into the story box today as we listen to the incredible wisdom, the advice, and the stories of none other than Professor Robin Hanson.
2: I'm happy to be here. So what shall we talk about?
1: We're going to talk about a lot of things. It's going to be, uh, I guess, okay. a non, non-linear s- let's conversation. S- let's pick one. <laughs> <laughs> but my first question for you, my friend, is... Uh, this is a question I'm curious to know your response to because of your your kind of work. But what do you believe, or what does success look like for you?
2: Uh for me, suggests success is um uh, achieving my ambitions. Hmm. And my ambitions are primarily or focally sort of to have intellectual insight that adds to important topics that matters and is is big. And that, you know, gets accepted and assimilated and built upon by the rest of the world. So I want to sort of add to the great edifice of knowledge that we're all creating together and make an important book that gets added to it.
1: Hmm. Why specifically is that success for you? Has it been this gradual thing over the course of your life that you've realized at a different point? or is there more of a catalyst moment somewhere?
2: I think like a lot of young men, I was looking for glory. I was looking for an image of glory that I could uh, aspire to. And uh, coming across, you know, intellectual people who had achieved great things like, say, Einstein, those were held up as, as an ideal of something that one could hope to do if one was good enough and worked hard enough. And that that could matter a lot. That could not just be impressive, but it could be useful. Mm. Uh, and so that's what I have. I, I decided early on that that was what I was shooting for. Mm. And I've continued to sort of hold that out as my goal.
1: What age were you, my friend, that you realized that this was something that you wanted to pursue, like the, the, the economics, predictions, all this sort of stuff. Was that something more later on in life? Or was it just having these intellectual conversations, deeper thoughts, trying to understand the world a little bit better? Was that, what age were you?
2: So just as a a new college student, I could be inspired by the physics that I saw at the time and how grand it could be. I, of course, knew many other topics. Uh, I think it took time for me to aspire to learn many topics and to find my own topics on which I might find glory. So initially, I I would accept the framing I was given in terms of the kind of topics there were and the kinds of questions that were important. And I would aspire to answer the questions that other people would pose as important. But then over time, I learned many things and came to see how there are many gaps between, you know, the various fields where people focus and the places between where there's not as much attention. And I came to question or doubt many sort of common assumptions are made and so I came to have more of an aspiration to sort of reframe or rethink things Mm. and then I could see someone like Einstein not just as someone who had made a great achievement but who did that in part via reconceiving and reframing the questions he was given Mm
0: -hmm.
2: not just accepting them in their terms but stepping back and re-asking the questions and that's become important to me. That is over time, I think what I've gotten especially good at is knowing many things and being able to step back, reorganize them, re-ask them, and find the holes, find the missing places between things and sort of rejudge what is important, what are the questions, and then you know, making contributions, perhaps primarily of the form, hey, you've been thinking about this wrong. If you think about it this way, you can make a lot more progress.
1: Hmm. Is there one particular question that you have at the moment that you haven't really been able to find much of an answer to?
2: Oh, probably. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't tend to focus on the things that I struggle with. I tend to look opportunistically for the things that are promising. Uh, I guess the most fundamental obstacle that stands out to me is that it's hard to make people care about what's important. <laughs> so I can judge what's important and then I can go figure out what seems to be important and figure out contributions on that. And from my point of view, they're kind of obvious why they're important, but it's actually hard to make other people care. Yep. Uh, that is, even if they acknowledge that they're important, they just don't seem very interested. <laughs> mm. So uh, that's in some sense, the biggest obstacle I face is, uh, you know, so once, once all a time I thought, you know, how could I save the world? <laughs> and thinking about how to save the world is like, what could we do that such that if we did it, it would save the world? Hmm. And then I think I came up with things that actually kind of meet that criteria. And then what I didn't expect was I could tell those to the world and I could have arguments to explain why those would be the answers to all the world's big problems and they wouldn't care. <laughs> hmm. They wouldn't be interested. But, I didn't anticipate that. I, I didn't think that would be the big problem.
1: The question, the big question is really, does the world exactly need saving?
2: Or want saving. Yeah. I mean, of course, in some sense, if if there are problem, big problems it has, and I can find big solutions, then from my point of view, uh, the big solutions are solving big problems and the world needs us, right? But the yeah. world may not want them.
1: Yeah, I've noticed that as well. I mean, there's, big issues that people have been trying to solve now for years, but there came, seems to be like this huge blowback <laughs> and it's kind of like, okay, so we've got this problem. We know it's a problem, but yet we've got, we're trying to come up with these solutions, but you don't want the solutions at the same time that we've got the problem happening and it's growing. It's getting worse. <laughs> so what do we do? And then there's more problems that keep forming as a result so i think you're right in in that respect i mean it we can spend so much time thinking about all these solutions we can offer all these solutions but trying to convince someone that they need to be implemented uh, i think we're behind the eight ball (laughs) that's just from my understanding i could be
2: yeah i think it's even more fundamentally that that like people only accept a certain range of problems as problems are really even to consider being problems. I mean, there's a sense in which, like, you know, if somebody's car is broken, they want it fixed, or if their kid is struggling in school, they want their kid to do better, but larger sort of ways we could change bigger things. They're not really in the market for those. Hmm. They, they kind of assume the world's a certain way and they aren't really interested in considering changes. So many, many of the solutions to our big problems would require somewhat big changes. Mm. And for many people, even most people, I think uh, they're not really interested in considering big changes. That's just not not on the agenda, not, not something that they're open to.
1: Yeah. Do you think that's ultimately a flaw of being a human is not wanting to accept big changes?
2: Well, I'd say... Uh, a fundamental flaw of humans is that we have pretty abstract minds and we're able to consider pretty abstract arguments and um, considerations and plans and we're willing to think on long time scales and large spatial scales and we're willing to go deep into the nature of physics and there's just a lot of things we're capable of understanding and talking about but our basic values are just this hodgepodge of desires and inclinations and sort of context-dependent triggers. Mm. And that's what we want in a sense. And we don't have sort of a high-level abstract description of our goals. So it's hard to motivate us to think abstractly about things because the things we care about are relatively concrete, being hungry, stubbing our toe, etc. And We can only really be motivated if some discussion gets close to one of those pretty concrete, you know, things that prod us to action. Right. And so, you know, we our values are encoded in a lot of just very concrete heuristics and prods. Yeah. And that's how evolution sort of designed us initially. And this abstract reasoning is clearly an add-on. And clearly the value encoding part has not been moved over to the abstract part. Yeah. The abstract part has to sort of translate everything it does down to some concrete things that will then trigger these concrete value triggers. Uh, And that's, I think, a feature that will eventually go away. That is, I think our distant descendants will no longer be like that. And that will be a big change, a way in which they're quite different from us. But for now, um, in order to motivate anyone to think about anything, you'll have to connect it to one of their concrete passions.
1: Do you think that... So if we look at the past and our ancestors, right, and how they lived compared to how we're living today, do you think that we've gotten 10 times worse over that period of time?
2: Well, I mean, there are so many different dimensions we can evaluate. What do you have in mind is in terms of worse versus better, I guess. Uh, So, I mean, if you want to look for like overall metrics, like clearly we together are vastly more capable than we were because we can support a vastly larger population and a vastly higher standard of living. So by that measure of our abilities, we together are vastly superior than we once were. Now, there are many other measures that you could point to, and then on some of those will be worse, but uh, that's certainly one worth noticing.
1: Why are, you talk about in in your book, uh, the elephant brain, the elephant in the brain, sorry. Um, Why are humans innately wired to be political? (laughs) Why are we?
2: (laughs) Well, so first of all, we're social. Yeah. That is, uh, the main environment for our ancestors was other humans, humans were in such large numbers so close to each other that other threats were in the background, they could together deal quite effectively with most other threats, but the main threat they had more trouble with was each other. So humans, therefore, paid close attention to each other, and they tried to form groups and coalitions that would help each other. And Politics is about sort of larger scale group coalitions. And so larger scale group coalitions are an important part of our coalitional behavior. And that's why politics is important. That is, we are primed to find a group of people that we can be part of, that we will show loyalty to them and hope that they will show loyalty to us and that we will gain advantages by being part of that larger group. Now, of course, we gain by being parts of smaller groups, like, say, a, f- a set of friends or family. But we also perceive that that in a, some you know, community of, of 100 people say that that will break into some pretty big subgroups. And we want to be part of one of those big subgroups. That's also important. That's what politics is, is where we join the largest groups that seem relevant to us in the big decisions being made.
1: What would happen to us as a human race if we didn't have politics as part of everyday life, like everyday interaction?
2: Um, Well, I mean, it's quite conceivable that we might learn to do that. That is, you know, for a million years, at least we lived in small groups of, say, 30 people. Hmm. And politics in that group meant, you know, the people, the group of 15 most like us, compared to the other group of 15 or something. And so that group of 15 are people we interact with a lot. And so that makes politics personal. And, you know, which means uh, there isn't much distinction between personal and politics. You have personal relationships with all these 30 people and you are considering their political relationship to you as part of your relationship to them. Now, in the modern world, where we've got billions of people... (laughs) We do have political affiliations with our immediate associates, but we haven't quite learned that those aren't the central channel by which we influence the political world
0: mm.
2: <laughs> or that, that we haven't sort of switched our orientation. In fact, today, for most of us, the main way we relate to politics is by relating to the people around us in terms of do we share their politics mm. and that's overwhelmingly priority for politics in our world. And so the actual, say, elections and legislatures and presidents and all that sort of stuff. That's all a side effect from our point of view of our trying to show our associates that we're on their side. So we could eventually perhaps coordinate better to actually more effectively (laughs) uh, channel our influence through these larger units of elections, et cetera. And that would be a different world. And that might be a more productive world from our individual point of view, at least, because now even though we talk as if we care a lot about politics, we're paying a lot of attention to it. We're mainly paying attention to it in order to influence the immediate associates to show them that say we're on their same spot.
1: Mm. I, so we've got two or more or less three sides, pretty much you got the people in the middle that are undecided. They just don't want any, any part of, like you know, I'm independent. Leave me alone, <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. This is the American politics. If I'm getting this right, you got the Republicans on the right, you got the uh, Democrats on the left. So one side is trying to destroy the other side. It seems like, for the most part, they're just like constantly blaming each other for a lot of things, and nothing seem nothing good really seems to get done. Is that really like? Oh, I guess this is probably a d- dumb question, but that doesn't seem to be really productive. Uh, so, is there a better way to to move forward and still have politics as part of our society?
2: So, there's a bunch of different things to do with this. So, so you, first, you're talking about the sides. You know, in principle, there's this vast high-dimensional space of all these features and positions we can be on, and so in principle, we're all distributed in this very high-dimensional space. Hmm. But there seems to be this natural process by which a single dimension gets picked out, and then we tend to align ourselves along that dimension, and then we suppress or pay less attention to all the other dimensions.
1: Right.
2: And so, uh, in principle, there, there are just lots of kinds of people <laughs> in all these other dimensions, but we, we say, oh, I don't care about that. We, we, we care about this one main dimension. And uh, we compress all this variety into this one main dimension. So that seems to be a natural result of this coalition pro- politics process by which we sort of form groups that help each other. And so we're each trying to show that we're with our group. And so um, if we focus too much on other dimensions, people worry about our loyalty <laughs> compared to the one big dimension they're all focused on. And so that's a natural process that it looks kind of robust. Now, you know, uh, that process has long been moderated and, you know, held in check by competition with sides. So in some sense, we have this fractal structure of we've got groups broken into groups, broken into groups and each group. Well, could tend to form an axis of different difference within it, but that will be moderated by the idea that we have these outside groups, and if we don't act unified enough, then they'll take our lunch. I mean, you know, they will lose, and that's been true all through history for all sides of groups, and even for nations like the United States, when outside threats seem strong enough, then we, you know, compromise on our inside differences, and we, you know, find a way to get along and, and make things happen. So I would say, so at the moment, as as you may know, the degree of polarization in the United States is at a peak relative, not just to the rest of the world, but also relative to say the last century. (laughs) Okay, so we're at an unusual peak. So uh, if you want to ask about the United States today, you need to be asking someone different question than about just generic political polarization all through history and space, right? So there's always been some degree of polarization, but that's there's always been some degree of infighting in any set of groups, but it's usually held in check by outside threats. So uh, you, you know, we could ask about why the US is unusually different and what we can do about that, or we could just ask about the usual kinds of polarization in, in most groups through all of history. Yeah. Well, which one would you like?
1: I mean, there's so many different political structures. I mean, you've got, I guess, for a an extreme example or what i think in the the western world is an extreme example is north korea their dictatorship and then you've got um hopefully then i listen to this the russian uh political sphere as well then you got kind of like the more I, I i struggle saying with democratic with the things that are going on these days but democratic society here in australia and in the us and other sort of western uh civilized countries so it just seems to me like the big question is if you look at history for for most of the most of the time these structures have just been going up and down up and down one time things are absolutely crazy so i think we've got to look at the person the individual the one that is making the decisions more than just the actual construct if that makes sense is that right
2: Well, I mean, the first thing I'd just say is if you want to understand just human behavior in general and humans in general, uh, if you focus on politics, you are focusing on this thing that humans are prone to focus on. So, um, I mean, you might want to therefore understand it, but you also want to be cautious and not get stuck into the same problem everybody else is stuck in is focusing overwhelmingly on politics. That is. When people get together, they are prone to talk politics far out of proportion to its fundamental importance, and it's, it's just the thing they like to talk about. Yeah. And of course, in a world that's more polarized like ours, uh, they all the more want to focus on it. And in some sense, like when there's not a there there to focus on, they focus on all the meta issues. So they talk about like. Well, who said something wrong about it and who made it, you know, and who's who's not being fair about it and and who, who is paying too much attention to it and who who is so you know, it's basically people are so eager to talk about it that if there's not like a concrete thing like you know, Russia invading Ukraine to talk about or yeah. or some other you know coronavirus policy to talk about, they just go wild talking on all the meta things you could talk about because they just they just really want to talk about it. So um that's I mean. Worth mentioning what I just said. I was just talking about it, too, but I was trying to talk about it in an abstract general sense to help you understand why everybody is so obsessed with talking about it and therefore maybe tempt you to back away to like maybe look at something else. There's other things going on in human behavior besides politics, Uh, but we do want to understand why are people so obsessed with politics? What's the driving energy? And as I said, the key energy is trying to show loyalty to associates. So... Today, if you ask about discrimination and what sort of characteristics people are willing to discriminate on, politics stands out at the top. <laughs> they're quite willing to discriminate. They don't want their child to marry someone of the other political party. And if you gave them a money or a scholarship, they'd make sure it went to somebody on their side all the way down the list. People are just quite eager and they're quite willing to attribute you know, the other side of the political spectrum to being evil in the ways they aren't for lots of other degrees. I mean, politics has become the central axis of our moral framing and our uh, allegiances.
1: Mm. So, okay. Finishing up on on the sort of politics side of things, I want to steer the conversation more towards human behavior, more or less, and understand why people do like, so we've got, for example, we've got great leaders in society and we've got bad leaders in society. Uh, Why is it that one person goes one way and the other person goes another way? Why is that the case? Is it because more or less is a choice or is it because of social constructs, how they've grown up, them making that own innate decision or just how they are wired?
2: I think if you just took any other decisions people make, you would realize that you do roughly understand the range of things that influence those choices.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You ask why does somebody order chicken or beef at the restaurant or why do they wear a hat or why do they you know, go into management or sales or whatever else it is. And we just talked about one day decisions. I think most people would see this sort of full range of influences. Yeah, there's some genetic influences. There's your family, there's your immediate options. There's some personal opportunity. There's some randomness about who tends to suggest things. I think if we go to sort of familiar decisions like that, people don't feel puzzled in explaining those things, right? And so now if you say, well, why does a leader go bad and you act puzzled? I'm going to say you're acting more puzzled than you are. (laughs) You're 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 just trying to be outraged about politics and you're trying to pretend that who could possibly understand how those other people would differ from my perfectly reasonable best opinion. Not noticing that in all these other areas of life, you would find it perfectly understandable how some, you're not a teacher, but you can understand how somebody else might be a teacher. You don't wear boots, but you could understand why somebody else might boots. I mean, you, you could just understand all those things quite easily until we get to politics or something where you're sort of morally framing it as my side is right and their side is a, is a travesty and an outrage. Uh, so I would say you already know the answer <laughs> in
1: that sense. So if we were to look at human behavior at the moment and the things that are going on currently with different sort of people. Um, there are a lot of unrest, a lot of ideas, a lot of all these things going on in our world. Is it right to predict that it's going to get 10 times worse in the future or is it right to predict as well that we're going to get. Uh, so, so just always notice
2: we, we should make a distinction when we're trying to explain behavior are we trying to explain just the middle of the distribution, just the typical things people do? Or are we trying to explain some deviations, including trends, right? Okay. So if we want to say, why is the United States different than, you know, Sudan? That's a different question than just why are humans on average some way?
1: That's a big and if question. And we want to
2: say, no. why is the US <laughs> different today than it was 80 years ago? That's also a different question than just the general thing. So my first cut usually is to just look, try to understand the average. Just people have typically gone to the doctor, people have typically gone to school, people typically get married, whatever it is, right? And just say, do we understand these just typical average behaviors? Because if you don't understand them, you're not going to have much of a hope of understanding the trends or changes or variations, right? That's going to be the first thing you have the best shot at understanding. And so the book, Elef- The Elephant in the Brain, is is mostly focused on understanding those averages, those, those typical uh, features, But there are these differences and they are perfectly valid to ask questions about. But again, you first want to f- figure out the causes of the typical behavior and then you could try to figure out what causes the difference. So if you say, why is political polarization at an unusual high in the United States in this moment in time?
1: Mm.
2: That's again, a, a little harder question than just asking why is there political polarization at all, whatever. Uh, but we can, we can try to do it. I think my first explanation would be to say that uh, it's like inequality, inequality seems to consistently grow after major wars and disasters (laughs) in times of peace and prosperity, and then it falls again in major wars and disasters. Uh, Basically, disasters hit the rich a lot harder than they hit everybody else in terms of their percentage effect on their wealth and their status, etc. So uh, that's just, so if you see inequality is high today and you say, what's the solution? And I say, well, look, the usual solution is a big war or a pandemic or some big disaster, or civil war that just destroys lots of stuff. I might say, you should hope it continues to increase <laughs> because you, you don't want one of those fixes. <laughs> that's not so good. <laughs> okay, live with the inequality if you can, because it's a sign of prosperity and peace, which are things you like. And I might also say, The same, you know, long periods of peace and prosperity are what also cause a focus on internal divisions. That is, as external threats fade and the memory of them fades, you haven't experienced them much and you're not afraid of them and they don't seem to come to mind, then you just feel more free to have internal conflicts. This is also true in, say, a firm or a club or anything else. If, you know, if you're... If you've got one religion and and you're just focused on the other people in your religion, you'll form schisms and and different denominations. If you're part of a denomination, you're trying to promote your denomination over the others, then you'll make peace and you'll, you know, try to promote together your denomination. Um, So basically the United States is at a peak of a long period of peace and prosperity and success. Uh, Being winning wars and being the leader of the world, (laughs) means that we just don't feel very afraid. And of course, you've got two huge oceans to protect ourselves from invaders as well. And so I would just say the United States is gaining the fruits and benefits of a long period of peace and prosperity. We have more inequality and we have more political polarization. And that's a problem because it means it's just going to get worse until you get one of these fixes that you don't want. You don't want one of the sort of standard fixes here. Uh, So you want to live with it.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a curious thing that we have been in this long time of peace and what would seem as prosperity, so it kind of looks like just around the corner is, is sadly times of upheaval and civil unrest. <laughs> um, we're getting signs of it at the moment, so it's easy to kind of predict that that's just around the corner. I mean, you hope that it's not, but then again, I'm curious about: Can't we motivate people to continue down the road of continual peace, or is that not really a possibility? Like we're we're doomed to have people motivated towards war.
2: Well, so I think the more consistent you see a trend in history, the more you should expect that trend to continue, unless you can identify some key way that the world has changed. Yeah. Uh, so this pattern of increasing polarization and infighting as uh, long periods of peace and prosperity is a pretty consistent long-term trend Um, so you'll have to ask well if you hope for a change now what exactly are you hoping for now I don't necessarily think that we are going to have a civil war or anything soon Um, actually what I'm more predicting but i'm not sure i like it is that one side wins. <laughs> if you think about it like in most cities in the united states or even in the world they aren't divided equally into two political parties. There's just one party that that wins, that has taken over, right? Similarly in most firms there isn't two equal divid- divided sides you know vying for the you know the position of the ceo. Somebody's in the ceo and they are dominating the rest of the firm. Everybody's kind of has to pledge allegiance to that. Most ancient empires were not divided into two equal (laughs) fighting sides. Um, They had one side that beat the other. Uh, Now, democracy in certain kind of environments can create a pressure toward this equal division through what's called the median voter theorem, the idea that the parties will adjust to to roughly split in order to split the vote. But that's only as long as democracy is actually the main driving force that decides who's in power. (laughs) Yeah. doesn't have to continue. And so honestly, my best guess for how this increasing polarization ends is one side wins and crushes the other side.
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, but without a civil war, they just win. Mm-hmm. Um, so then outcomes are less determined by uh, a median voter. So just like in a city, if, if, if there's a city who's mainly you know determined by one party winning, then contesting for power has to be done within that party. And to the extent that that party doesn't allow much contesting of power, then there's just some sort of insider elite group that's just maintaining themselves and continuing, right? Mm. That sort of thing could happen at say the national level in the United States um, where, you know, so, so basically if you ask, well, which side would win, I would say, let's just look at the other peaks of power, <laughs> the other high grounds, military high grounds in in the United States If we say media, law, civil service, academia, tech, the military, you know, we can just go through the sort of the the medicine, we just go through the sort of the high grounds. Each of those high grounds can be taken over by one side in this battle. And if that one side takes over enough of these high grounds, that will give it a position of power for which to sort of just win the overall war. And uh, I think you can guess which side that is at the moment. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> that's just the straightforward prediction is that they managed to, you know, build on those bases of power to, um, to win.
1: Mm. And then in today's day and age as well, with the technology, technological advancements that we have available at our fingertips, it doesn't seem like it'd be very, very long at all. Like a, if it was a civil war, right. It didn't seem to be like, It'd be long at all, <laughs> it'd be very, very short know. or quick. Or is I, that I
2: think civil wars can be just long and deadly and damaging, uh, if there's enough, of course, participants who are willing to to fight. Um, I, I certainly hope I'm not willing to roll those dice mm-hmm. <laughs> on a civil war, I'd rather avoid it, but um, yeah, certainly, you know, repressive governments are have more powers today to. You know, but I think their increasing powers are more in the form of surveillance and just finding out about their opponents and, you know, cutting off their opponents growth in the bud and early stages. Uh I think that's mostly what the increasing powers are. Um uh, And we've seen those be actually pretty effective.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm just. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a deep thinker with these sort of things. So I'm like looking at what the news is saying. I'm looking at what history's already given us and just trying to piece together what's right really going on as best I possibly can.
2: I mean, I think if right. you're trying to be honest, you want to yeah. stand back from your living in this age. <laughs> just imagine <laughs> that you were reading history of this age from some other age. And just yeah. asking, what would you guess if you were just reading this history from some distant vantage point?
1: That's that's uh, what I do. Yeah.
2: And so, in I, which case, you you know, you don't be so hopeful, right? You're not gonna, you know, say, well, I sure wish these sides would win. Therefore, I predict they'll win. You'll you might know who you wish would win, but you also might know who you guess will win.
1: Mm. So, going past, I guess, I think we've been. Yeah, <laughs> uh, go, going past all this stuff into some more exciting things that are going to happen in the future. I guess you, you're looking at uh, technology advancements, AI, artificial intelligence, and uh, all those things, which I, I think is it's cool in one respect, but for me, looking at it like the kind of things like implanting chips like Elon Musk is doing, uh, he implanted a chip into a monkey. I think it was very not long ago. Um, so, human trials, I think, is just around the corner. But what what are some other things that you predict coming in the realm of technology with our economy, all those aspects? I know it's probably a broad and, and big question. So, lots to talk about there.
2: <laughs> well, for that sort of thing, everything depends on what time scale you're interested in. So, I think it's just really easy to see that if you look on a long, long enough timescale, you have to expect really large changes. As <laughs> if you look on the, in the past on longer timescales, you see really large changes. So I think that means if you're looking on a century or a thousand years, you have to be expecting enormous changes in the world and our lives. Um, so I think right there, that's what people gives people pause because again, You know, we talked about how people mainly react to the immediate things around them. And if you try to give them a vivid image of world change that much, their major reaction is repulsion. It's just, you know, if there was a room like that, would they walk through the door? No. It would stay out of that room, right? Mm -hmm. If it was a a cave, you'd go in the cave and you'd be in that whole other world, they would be very cautious about going through that door into the cave, right? Mm -hmm. Because they are in a world they understand, that's familiar, that they like, and they would be quite reluctant to go through that door. Uh, So if you present an image of some very different world, then they are just universally put off, right? And then if you connect that and you say, well, this thing that is happening right now, this Elon Musk, you know, chip in that monkey, that's a connection to that strange world. That's leading us to that strange world. Then people go, I don't want that either. (laughs) Because that looks like it's leading to that other place they're they're afraid of. It's not even so much that they're against it. This is just strange and foreign and and not safe, right? Unknown. And that's enough just to want to stay back um so you know with respect to you know your question i i need to ask like what time scale you want to talk about if you want to talk about five years or 30 years or 100 years or a thousand years uh or even a million years each of those time scales should have very different answers to what do i see coming
1: Mm. well that's interesting for me because like i thought you know we would get certain things, that would be 10 years down the track and we're getting them like they look like they're only about a year, two years away. So it kind of feels like to me, there are certain things that are happening in our world with artificial intelligence, with robots being able to do things that is just like super, super quick. So I don't really know the best. Well, if, we, time if, we, if we took
2: AI, I'd say, you know, we're still a long way off from really big disruptive changes. So how how long? You know, many decades.
1: Why? Why is that? You know,
2: maybe you know three to three to thirty decades. Is that because because they aren't actually changing that much so far? That is, you know, they haven't actually gotten much customer revenue from the products they've been introducing uh, lately. We're not in a revolution. So actually, you know, um, a a year ago or so, I, I, I published this paper where we had looked at automation over the previous 20 years. Hmm. And we looked at in the whole United States, in the whole, in the United States, uh, we looked at 800 different jobs and for each job, how automated it was in each year. (laughs) And then we looked at a bunch of other features of jobs. So we could say how much had automation changed in those 20 years. And we could say what predicts whether automation changes or not. And we could also say, uh when automation changes does that change wages or the number of workers? Hmm. and um, basically when on average when automation changes it does not change wages or number of workers and automation didn't change that much in 20 years and the things that predict whether automation changes had not changed in 20 years that is we have basically the same kind of automation now as we did 20 years ago and it's not changing that much and it's not having that big of impacts when it when it does so we're just not in a position to worry about it right now.
1: Yeah. Do you do you foresee any of that, you know, science fiction stuff coming to play in our in our real world like eventually in the next say 10 15 years?
2: So, you have to say which science fiction stuff you have in mind. Oh, so, that's, that's... I could tell you what I think the most science fictiony change that will happen in the next 30 years is.
1: Oh, please do.
2: So, I think that's remote work. So we've just had this big push toward remote work in the last two years of the pandemic. We're going to see a retrenchment as the pandemic fades, but we're also over the next few decades going to see that continuing to grow. And that I think is the biggest change we're likely to see over the next 30 years, because the key point is that when you do jobs via remote work, now you allow a much larger world to compete for each of those jobs. And then you allow a much larger firms to organize around doing those jobs with much more divisions of labor. So it's the difference between like doing something at a very local level and having in a city where you can specialize. Right. So if you think of, say, plumbers today, plumbers are very local. They don't specialize very much. Mm -hmm. Each plumber is near their customers. And therefore, they have to be able to do a lot of kinds of plumbing and they don't specialize very much in any one because you need a plumber to show up and be right there. But if plumbing was done by remote work, it would be more like an automobile factory, right? There'd be hundreds of workers, each of whom did one very specialized task, and they would get you know huge efficiencies from specializing in the way that, say, an automobile factory special you know gets efficiencies from specializing. And of course, you could have people all over the world competing for that. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, that's a huge gain that we can get as we are able to take jobs and tasks and industries and make them more remote. And you know, one of the main things that requires is better avatars, better like local physical representations of somebody working, but that's not too far off. That's not that hard. No. Um, and so that's my best guess for the biggest change over the next 30 years, say. Now that's not full AI, it'll make AI a little easier. So once somebody's doing something remotely, if you have an AI that can do the task instead of a person, it's easier to swap it in yeah. <laughs> just for the, you know, the, the the you know the plumber lines things up and he's ready to solder and instead of soldering himself he pushes the solder button and an AI does the soldering right huh. and then you know the next steps right so you can interleave doing something yourself and having automation do a task when it's all being done remotely hmm. right and so that'll that'll help AI but I still don't think AI will be the big thing I'd say remote work will be the big thing
1: so. Just so I can understand this better, pretty much in the next thirty years, I guess we're predicting that uh, pretty much every single industry will be have some form of remote work attached
2: to it. Well, not not every industry, but just more of them will switch that way.
1: Yeah, okay.
2: So now there are there's a limited number of industries now that are you know relatively dominated by remote work, yep. like say software or call centers. Uh, now perhaps starting education, but there are a number of industries where in remote work is coming more dominant and yeah. they're changing. Um, but most industries are not right. Most things you get in your city around you, there's a person living near you who does it.
1: Mm. Does that remove the human connection factor?
2: Well, to the same degree that it's already removed it in those other industries that are now dominated by remote work, it changes it certainly it modifies it uh, and, you know, makes it better in some ways and worse in others. Um, But it'll certainly, but since, you know, right now we're having a remote conversation, clearly we've gotten used to it to some degree in a (laughs) lot of areas of life.
1: Yeah,
2: I mean, I don't think it's, I don't think the immediate remote connection will bother people that much. I think they'll be more bothered by the larger scale changes in response. So, so for example, There'll be large multinational firms that say provide things like plumbing, mm. in which case it'll be harder to regulate plumbing from national regulations because one nation's regulations will less influence these multinational corporations. And your country will now need to specialize more in what it provides to the rest of the world. If you try to cut off your country from the rest of the world, you won't gain as much for these big multinationals doing remote work. And so you'll need to you know, become part of this tighter world market for remote work, but then you lose some of your national autonomy, the ability to control these things from your nation. And that'll bother people a lot.
1: Yeah. I mean, we're already seeing like, you know, not uh, Elon Musk, uh, Zuckerberg doing things like meta, the uh, VR metaverse and all those things, which, you know, it, it looks cool from, from the outside, from my perspective, I I always think you know what would podcasting look like in say the next ten years when we've got VR, we've got our own avatars.
2: I'm I'm pretty skeptical there. I I just I just don't think that'll make much of a difference. But I don't think I'm also I'm also somewhat skeptical about crypto. I mean, I guess I'm less skeptical about Uh crypto than about VR.
1: (laughs) I'm skeptical Um, about crypto, NFTs, all those uh digital currencies i mean there there's a huge hype and there's a huge build up right towards it but I mean, yeah. and th- there will be something
2: left over after a crash but still it's overrated
1: yeah you know, just, you I, know, on I average people
2: kind of, who are invested at the moment will lose their money
1: <laughs> yeah I mean, if you look at say like bitcoin for example yeah. or even in crypto like one day it would be super high and the next day or even the next couple of minutes right. it just drops Significant. Sure. So you've got to be like extremely brave.
2: But look, so all, all through my life, you know, you know, there's people touting lots of different things and you're usually face a choice between criticizing what somebody else is touting or finding something worth supporting. Mm. And the world just doesn't reward the criticizing much,
0: <laughs>
2: right? If, if there's a thing that's popular and then it goes away If you were the guy who criticized it, you go away too. When it goes away, nobody cares about your criticism. And if it succeeds, then you look bad, right? So there's just, there's not a way to win criticizing something that you think will probably go away. Uh, So, you know, you're from your point of view and maybe even social point of view, the best thing is to say when you see something and say, no, I don't believe in that. Instead of like elaborating on why and explaining it to everybody, go find something else that you can believe in find more promising and find a way to focus on that and build that up and support it and help it happen. Right yeah. now, maybe the world would benefit more from more of this criticism, but honestly it doesn't reward it much. Mm. People just aren't very interested. Uh, so, you know, I, I think you gotta ask what is interesting, what has promise, what are you looking for? So that's why I, I might rather than listing all the things that are overhyped, <laughs> I'll try to find, well, what are the few things that are underhyped? Yeah. And so remote work was one of those that I might give right there. Yeah. Um, Now, another class of things that I'm excited by but can't really predict is just better institutions. So, I specialize as an economist in thinking about institution designs, and I think there's enormous potential for better institutions. And I really wish a lot more attention and effort would go into prototyping and testing them in order to field them. Uh, That potential just remains for a long time. I don't know necessarily there'll be a boom in them, but at some point, those things will happen and be valuable.
1: We have the similar wavelength in that respect, even though I'm not an economist. I just, yeah, I think the institutions can be better. They should be better. Like, but the question is, will they? Um, That's my thought process around it. And then,
2: yeah. I think, unfortunately, the world is getting less willing to try things out there. Yeah. And so I actually think we don't have... A strong world government, but we are increasingly having a stronger world mob. <laughs> that is the world is coming together more as a shared community of thought and values. And mm. that's causing regulation to be uniform, surprisingly uniform around the world. And that's making people less willing to try new things out. So you might think in a big world, sure, if your place doesn't well, your the rules in your place won't let people try new things, somebody else will. And that's just becoming much less true because the whole world basically wants to do things the same way.
1: Yeah. What do you, what are your thoughts on having said all that the mob kind of mentality? Do you think that in the future, we're going to have this thing called, you know, one mind, one, one people kind of thing.
2: So humans for a million years, and they lived in those groups of 30 people, they did that. Yeah. That is communities of, people, of 30 people who live basically by themselves, they would form a consensus and they would have the impression that they were of one mind about the things they had discussed. They might start out with a disagreement and then they would form a consensus. That is just how humans have behaved in small groups for a very long time. That's also true of most small work groups. Most small work groups don't maintain sort of visible differences of opinion in overextended periods. They 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 form an agreement and they form a consensus. Uh, So the major disagreements we've had are across groups who are more distant from each other and less connected. Uh, But as the world becomes more connected and unified, we are forming groups on this largest global scale. And elites are more so. That is, the Davos crowd, et cetera. Those people travel a lot. They talk a lot with people across borders. They are more a global elite that is less tied to their nations. Mm. And... You know, if there are people who descend from that, they tend to be more local, rural, non-elites.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, and that's the world as it's appearing today. So honestly, you know, sometimes the major axis of disagreement in the world today is becoming the global elites who agree and then the other local, rural others who might disagree. Uh, that's really how we've seen it in the pandemic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, you know, that is the world we're moving into. And it feels very satisfying to human nature. Humans have always been very frustrated by the fact that the their larger worlds they live in can't function like the small groups that they were used to functioning in it for a million years. They've always wondered why can't we all just get along the way a group of 30 people does get along when they all live together for many years. Yeah. And now we are achieving that at the global level, but there will be costs.
1: Yeah. I was I was saying before this, or when we just found out about the pandemic, I'm like, it'll be this instance where the elites will be they'll take over, they'll make the majority of the decisions. So it'll be like almost the strong, strong versus the weak. The strong will be right. the ones. So that-
2: so it's interesting to notice if you distinguish between experts and elites. Yes. There are two different kinds of people. So experts are people who have a particular role and they are assigned to know particular things and elites are just people who are prestigious and smart, et cetera, who just talk among each other. And it's but their opinions aren't so much, you know, weighted by their expertise in the subject. They are just, you know, so think about a talk at a conference or or a panel discussion (laughs) at the talk. The speaker is presenting themselves as an expert on a topic and they are telling you their expertise. But on a panel discussion, people are asked all sorts of questions that aren't things they necessarily are expert in, but nevertheless, they will still talk among themselves and form opinions. And that's more the elite mode, which is what elites do in parties and in legislative legislatures and all around the world forever, right? That's the elite mode. So it was surprising to note that at the beginning of the pandemic, experts all said one sort of thing, and then the elites all of a sudden started talking together and they came to a different opinion. Yep. And then they told everybody their different opinion, and the, elect- the experts just swift caved immediately, just changed their opinion to, to match what the elite said. Because <laughs> yep. So the fundamental principle is, you know, experts run their particular thing as long as elites can't be bothered to, like, talk and have an opinion about it. But if elites talk and have an opinion about something, then their opinion is, is what goes. Yep. And everybody will follow that along. And yep. so that's this, you know, ancient consensus mob gossip process. Yeah. That's now happening at a global scale.
1: Because the the elites, they control the power, they control the money, they control the decisions. The experts are there, they're meant to help guide the elites in right. particular things. But so,
2: so here's an interesting phenomenon. Like when somebody wins the Nobel Prize, <laughs> which makes them like one of the best experts in the world, one of the first things they try to do is write op-eds. Yep, That is, they try to say, ooh, now I'm an elite. And then, of course, they tend to fail at that. But they say, I could translate being one of the best experts in the world into maybe being seen as an elite. And they want more to be an elite than an expert. Mm. And you rarely see people going the other, I mean, sort of the other way, but uh, (laughs) people seem to agree that if you want to be an expert or an elite, you want to be an elite, come on.
1: Yep. I, I, we're on the same wavelength with this (laughs) hundred percent. It makes total sense to me. I don't know if people are listening to this and it makes sense to them. Um, but yeah, it just totally makes sense. But where I was going with the, the one mind sort of thing, I think I was, I missed the, the most important question there, which was, can we, would we be able to upload our thoughts into this one sort of universal brain? so instead of like the, uh, te- technologically speaking instead of just
2: okay you know, so we yeah. we today have the brains that we have and that we have pros- these brains brains are designed to form a larger social brain that is huh. our brains as so like the brain of a cat is designed to be a lone brain by itself right the brain of a human is designed more to be part of a larger social brain as formed by social discussion That's what it means for humans to be especially social creatures. We don't function so well by ourselves. We function well in groups. And in fact, we are more rational and intelligent in groups uh, as a group than we are as individuals. So we are already partway there. Now, our brains have a very particular structure, They have a very particular sort of hardware implementation. They have a very particular, say, bandwidth limitations from communication from the outside and processes from the inside and particular algorithms they use, they are one point in a vast space of possible minds. (laughs) Uh, And so we will eventually start to explore that vast space, Um, but it'll be a while because, you know, artificial intelligence, as you know, is hard. So the artificial minds we've created are are not so good. (laughs) They're getting better, but they're certainly compared to a human mind, they're they're just not remotely as good. So uh, I think, The most likely first step, though, will be that we will make computer emulations of human brains. That is, we will just take brains that we have now in the human brain, and then we will make a similar structure in artificial hardware, but we won't change the overall structure of that thing or its priorities or its algorithms or things like that. We'll just move it to different kind of hardware. And that's the subject of my first book, The Age of Work, Love, and Life, When Robots Rule the Earth. I say, if that technology appears, then I try to work through all the consequences for that scenario. Okay. And the world changes in a great many ways, but what it doesn't change there is the structure of the smarts. <laughs> mm. They are basically human structured minds, but able to take advantage of being in different hardware to say, make copies, change their speed, do lots of other things. Uh, and there's a lot to explore there. But of course, eventually, we will uh, make artificial software and hardware Uh, you know, competitive in many cases with human brains. And then we will eventually improve both of them. And then there's this long-term future of what happens when we explore this larger space of brains. And of course, part of that larger space will presumably be better coordination between the brains, Mm -hmm. as most of the brain design won't be focused on brains that you send off isolated to do things all by themselves. They will be brains that will be part of a larger society. So Mm -hmm. the future of brain design is brains that function well in a larger world not brains that function so well by themselves. So clearly that will be a future, but again, you have to notice human brains are already designed to a large degree to function in a social world. They are already quite a distance from an isolated brain that just works well by itself.
1: Will robots ever rule humans and the earth?
2: So um, in the scenario of the age of M, these humans who uh, are now in robot bodies and brains, Mm. They will think of themselves as humans, but they are robots. So you have to ask, does that count? Mm. Right? If that counts, then yes, robots rule the earth because they rule the earth. Now, they are not robots. They, they don't think they are non-human. They just think they are more advanced humans. So uh, just like we look back, to say, our ancestors 10,000 years ago, and we still think we're the same creatures. <laughs> it's mm. not so clear they would think that of us. If you could describe us and our world to them, they might find us so weird and distant that they might not think of us as the same sort of creatures as them. Uh, and that's also, you know, when we look forward and we see all these changes, we may hesitate and say, yeah, those are interesting creatures, smart. I can see what they're doing. And, well, they're not sure they're us. <laughs> Uh, There's there's an interesting analog with the Star Trek transporter type scenario. So as you know, in the TV series and movies, Star Trek, they have this thing called the transporter that moves you from the spaceship down to the ground so they don't have to have a long time transporting people to break up the drama of the show. (laughs) And the transporter supposedly functions on the basis of disassembling all your atoms, reading where the atoms are, and then reconstructing a new set of atoms down on the ground with all the same structure. So in philosophy classes where you explain all this to people and then you ask them at the end, "Okay, uh, you're about to get into the transporter. Will the thing that come out at the other end be you? Maybe 50-50 says it's you and 50 of them say, no, that's not me. (laughs) That's something else that that thinks like me and looks like me, but, but that's not me. Now, if you ask the same question from the other direction, if you ask. You're about, you just walked out of the transporter. Was the thing that walked into the transporter you? It's 100%. People say, yeah, that was me. (laughs) So now you can see it's the same question, but asked from the two different points of view. Looking backward, we're very tempted to embrace our origins as us. Looking forward at where we might go, we're much more reluctant to embrace those as us. And I think that's also true across time. When we look at our ancestors, we say, yeah, that's us, even if they are enormously different from us. We look at the future of big
1: changes. We're not so sure that's us. This is uh, very fascinating stuff. I feel like I'm a geek. It's <laughs> just absorbing all this information. I have really, really enjoy this conversation, uh, Professor Robin. And um, i got one final question for you, if that's okay, because I just noticed the time. Absolutely. And be thankful of your time, sir. Um, this is uh, a question I love asking all my guests at the very end. It is a hypothetical one, but I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you've been able to reach the age of 100. All your friends and your family have decided to put together a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Don't ask me how in the world. It'll be a long film. It'll be a very long film, but we get to sit back and relax Okay. enjoy it. don't ask me how they got it all, by the way. We'll, I think we'll they're going to have to edit this
2: thing down quite a bit.
1: <laughs> we'll take the, the important highlights. Of- at, at
2: most it's going to yeah, maybe you'll listen to a weekend long film of somebody, yes. you know, 12 hours of selection from their life, but that's the most they're going to get. They're gonna be <laughs> well, do.
1: we'll call it a 12 hour film <laughs> for, for everyone that okay. be there to watch it. Um, but, you know, what would you like that film to say in a show about your life?
2: Uh well, of course, I would like it to show that I'm an ordinary person with all the usual failures and, and, you know, loves and connections, you know, so I certainly want my family and children and friends and origins and parents to be a part of that story. Mm-hmm. I want, you know, to the extent I've made big mistakes, I want to own up to them. Uh, big flaws, they should be mentioned and, or pointed out. I'm not, I don't want to hide them, but once all that's acknowledged, I would still like my best things to be there. <laughs> And I would like you, you to see sort of the, the big ideas that I pursued and, and that you know seem solid and promising. And to the extent that some of them influenced others, I'd want to show that it like they had legs and they 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 continue to have influence. And maybe even the ones that don't at least show that they seemed promising, but I guess they haven't been picked up. And I just want people to see, you know these attempts and um bids basically for for immortality and glory in some sense like you know as an idea person that's the things we create that we hope can last forever or have you know forever descendants if not you know the thing itself and uh, that's what I would want to be a part of it uh but all the rest should be there too
1: it's a great send-off message, Professor Robin. People can find you at overcomingbias.com, I believe. They can get your books, The Age of M, Love and Life "When Robots Rule the Earth, The Elephant in the Brain, Hidden Motives in Everyday Life. It's available on Amazon. People can go and get a copy of it. Um, okay, my is website they,
2: is hanson.gmu.edu. hansen.e What was that again? .gmu.edu. Okay. My, my university is George Mason University. So Hansen, my name... GMU, my gmumyuniversity.edu
1: That's how I found him people and <laughs> got in contact with him it was George Mason so you definitely can get in contact with him if you like uh, but you know Professor Robin can I just say thank you so much for your Thanks time for today to really enjoy this conversation lots to talk about <laughs> um, but thank you so much for joining me today on the Storybox podcast Take care I really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guests today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way and that you would have learned something new as well. If you would like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on all podcast platforms. It is that easy And if you did get something from today's guest, please do share it around with your friend or family member who you feel could benefit from hearing today's story. And before you go, I greatly appreciate if you could spend 30 seconds leaving a rating review over on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to reaching more people and building this community of story Storybox. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one you heard today. Your support is always greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the story box, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then.
0: Hold up. What was that?